0: Here's an upsetting story. It's a Sunday evening in late October. A woman begins having chest pains. Just after 8pm, paramedics are called to the house. Nearly two hours later, she finally arrives in an ambulance outside an extremely busy A&E department, joining a queue of ambulances. Still in the ambulance, she's assessed by a nurse and monitored by the paramedics. Another hour goes by. And nearly three hours after that initial call...
1: At 11 o'clock, she suffered a cardiac arrest and despite efforts to resuscitate her, sadly she died, having spent an hour, over an hour, in the ambulance outside the hospital.
0: Four days earlier... We don't believe that the, the pressures that are currently faced by the NHS are unsustainable. Health Secretary Sajid Javid... Don't get me wrong, there are huge pressures. But at this point, we don't believe they're unsustainable. You're listening to Stories of Our Times and The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, the NHS. Can it cope this winter? The woman with chest pains died in Cambridge. The East of England Ambulance Service and Cambridge University Hospitals launched Investigations. But two weeks later, a recording of an internal meeting at the same hospital was leaked to the local press. Its chief executive was reported to have said he was anxious and scared and that the trust was ceasing to function as a hospital. In an official statement, the trust said, we are managing the needs of COVID patients while striving to deliver emergency care at the same rate or even higher than before COVID-19. But you can strive and fail another hospital boss told the Health Service Journal we should all be rated inadequate. So are things in the NHS particularly bad as this winter approaches and can they be fixed?
1: I'm Cat Lay. I'm health editor at The Times and I've been covering health for seven or eight years for the paper.
0: We last spoke to you about the state of the NHS in January. Since January, what have you perceived as having changed?
1: Well, in January, the big issue was just the sheer number of COVID patients who were going into hospital. What's different now, I think, is that we still have those COVID patients in hospital, thousands of them, but the pressure seems to be everywhere across the system and, and not driven purely by those coronavirus patients. In the winter, we are used to this idea of the NHS's annual winter crisis, but it is a bit sooner than usual this year
0: right that's a very important overall impression back last january peak of the pandemic most number of people dying per day icus absolutely chocolate a and all we were really talking about was the crisis caused by covid and what you're saying is now we're in november and this is no longer a covid crisis in the sense of people who've got covid this is now a generalized crisis of people who've got all kinds of things
1: that's right. These are people who perhaps didn't get treatment last year when they should have, when their condition wasn't quite so urgent. And now it's really deteriorated to the point that they need help urgently. And it's also staffing issues caused by the pandemic in terms of burnout, people just not being able to go that extra mile to prop up services that they used to.
0: Now. We're in November. Usually, the winter crises are later. Actually, in the winter, <laughs> and we're in we're in the autumn. How can we measure what the impact is at the moment on the NHS compared to previous years?
1: Well, there are some statistics that we get fairly regularly from the NHS. Um, so one is ambulance waiting times patients who are in one of the most urgent categories is called category two and it includes people who are having suspected strokes, suspected heart attacks, sepsis, major burns, that kind of thing. They are supposed to be reached by an ambulance in 18 minutes and the average response time in October was 53 minutes and 54 seconds. And there's a more urgent category than that, which is category one, cases of cardiac or respiratory arrest. That's where someone's heart is stopped or they're not breathing. That it has a seven minute target and that's not being met either. The average response time for them was nine minutes and 20 seconds. So we should be clear about this.
0: From ambulance delays alone, people are dying who in previous years probably wouldn't.
1: Yes, that's what paramedics and actually ambulance bosses are saying. They are saying patients are coming to harm, patients are dying as a result of this pressure.
0: Okay, in the ambulance sector particularly, why is this the case? It's not obvious why a hangover from the pandemic would lead to a crisis in the ambulance service now.
1: One of the major issues at the moment is ambulances not being able to offload patients into A&Es because A&E itself is full. That is partly because of more people going there. It's partly because there are no beds elsewhere in the hospital to send patients onto once the A&E doctors have decided that they need a bed. And that is partly because of problems getting people who are medically fit for discharge from hospital out into the community because of a variety of factors, but one that comes up time and time again is a lack of capacity in social care.
0: So what you described is essentially a string with at one end the ambulance service and at the far end it goes into different bits, but one of those is social care. If social care is mm. restricted, that has a knock-on on beds. That has a knock-on in A&E being able to take patients out of A&E quickly to put them in beds. And that has a knock-on for ambulances who are stacked up at A&E waiting to offload their patients, which has an impact on patients at home who need an ambulance.
1: Yes, yeah. And uh, we heard this week that people are calling 999 repeatedly. So we've seen an increase in 999 calls. And a lot of that is people calling back and going, where is that ambulance you promised me?
0: To get a sense of how things now compare with January, we've been talking to several of the doctors we first spoke with at the peak of the pandemic. So A&E is in a funny place. Adrian Boyle is an emergency consultant and vice-president of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. In January, with the ICU's full, he told us there was an eerie calm in A&E.
2: We are... Probably going through the same thing that we went in the first lockdown, where the numbers suddenly drop. We worry a bit about the missing patients, people who may be having symptoms of a stroke
0: or a heart attack. And now...
2: I'm a fairly robust individual, but you do walk into um, emergency departments, and particularly when you're in charge, and you just, sometimes you walk in and you just see this endless queue, and you just, it, you feel slightly overwhelmed. It's like, where do I start? I've been doing this job for 25 years. The ability not to give good care will make people feel humiliated, guilty and resentful. And I am sure that is happening quite a lot. The really extreme example is people who are calling an ambulance and are dying before an ambulance gets to them or dying in an ambulance outside an emergency department. And everyone will feel absolutely mortified about this. About 4,500 people are coming to harm. And by harm, we mean death as a consequence of long waits in emergency departments. And we've produced similar figures for the devolved nations. We're seeing the sort of pressure in October and November that we were expecting to see in January and February. January and February are traditionally the toughest months for the NHS. And this has happened despite there being pretty much no flu around. And, you know, when flu gets going, if it gets going, and fingers crossed it it won't, but history would suggest that it's going to, what's going to happen in February and January could be very, very challenging for us.
1: We know that overcrowding in emergency departments kills. Looking back at those NHS statistics, in October there were 7,059 people who faced a weight of... 12 hours or more from the time that doctors in A&E decided to admit them before they were found a bed on a ward. And looking back to October 2019, pre-pandemic, it was 725. Mm. So it's gone up, you know, was that almost tenfold.
0: That's huge. It's just huge. Now, if we were to illustrate the journey of somebody who is at home and requires urgent care, could you walk us through how one patient's journey might go in a kind of averagely equipped area?
1: Well, I suppose you you call 999 and the average wait for your 999 call to be answered is is about a minute at the moment. And then let's say our our person has a suspected heart attack, you know, chest pains and so on. The average waiting time they're facing for the ambulance to get there is 53 minutes, 54 seconds. So the ambulance gets there after just about an hour, gets two A&E, and then there's a potential wait for handover. So the target is it should happen within 15 minutes. Let's say that takes half an hour. And so you're already getting on for two hours after that first phone call before you're in front of the doctor's in a and e
0: i could imagine and i think you can as well that for a person or the relative of a person in that situation this actually sounds not just a little far from the ideal it sounds distinctly suboptimal
1: it's hard to talk about isn't it because you know you don't want to put people off seeking care but the phrase beyond full stretch is uh, is one i've heard a number of times
3: Hospitals filled up with COVID patients. They emptied of everyone else. And this is the shocking result. Nearly 5 million people waiting to start.
1: 5.6 million people waiting for routine. Hospital. Today, data shows a record 5.8 million people were waiting for treatment. That's the highest number since records began in 2007.
0: Let's look at the rest of the NHS. I mean, we talk mostly about emergency care folks. Obvious reasons. What's going on with the rest of the NHS now?
1: Well, we have record high waiting lists for planned care. There's 5.83 million people in England waiting for treatment. The number of people who've been waiting more than a year is above 300,000. GPs also overwhelmed. They're seeing a lot of patients come forward, again, with things that they didn't want to bother the health service with during the pandemic. So it's across the board, really.
0: I mean, five million people waiting is about one in every 10 people in England. And when we talk about elective surgery, elective is such a sort of nice, soft word, isn't it? You know, you can do it, but you don't really need to do it. Well, if you're in total agony and you can't walk, and that might make the difference between whether you get exercise or not, which may help, I don't know, fend off the next possible heart attack or something like that. It is really serious. Now, has all this led to an increase in people's use of private health care? In other words, an increase in people actually paying themselves.
1: Yeah, we are hearing about an increase in that. People thinking, I don't want to be waiting a year, so I will use you know my savings to get my hip done privately. Amanda Pritchard, who's the chief executive of NHS England, and Sajid Javid, the health secretary, they have both said, we expect the waiting list to get longer before it starts going down again. Realistically, that's going to take a few years. I think most of the people analysing the data seem to agree. Coming
0: up, the psychological impact on doctors of the last 20 months. But first, here's the boss. I'm John Witherow, editor of The Times. Thanks to you, we get to cover the broadest and most important daily news stories. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times and get one month free visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. I had two relatives go through A&E departments last month, and the entire experience was very worrying, not least because... Something seemed to have happened to the morale of quite a lot of the staff they were having to deal with. Is that something that we can measure, or does it bear through in your experience?
1: It's certainly something we're hearing more about. These are people that have been working flat out, dealing with quite horrible things for the best part of two years now, Uh, and that's going to take its toll.
0: There's a phrase that doctors seem to have been using lately, moral injury Uh, have you heard that Mm. phrase and and what does it mean
1: yes this is the psychological harm that's done to doctors and and nurses and other medical staff when they don't feel that the system they're working in allows them to give care of the quality that they would like to give or that they think the patient really needs
0: Back in January, every doctor we spoke to told us they were suffering from chronic sleeplessness, their responsibilities weighing heavily on them. One of them was Dr Pushpo Bubble Hossain, a junior doctor working on a Covid ward in South London. At the time, she told Manveen that memories of especially tough shifts were playing on repeat in her head.
3: It's so hard to choose which one is the worst. I think it's the emotional bit. It's when we call families and say your family member is not doing too well and they might not survive. When COVID patients pass away, you can't see your family member that one last time. So you're the last to see them, really? Yes, sometimes. How often,
1: you know, during the course of a week, how often are you having to have those conversations with relatives?
3: At oh, the moment? like every day every day. Right now we're all on autopilot. We don't have the time to express that grief. I have to go see the other patient, and the next, and the next. Maybe when the storm has passed, maybe that's when we'll find out how much it has affected all of us.
0: I gave Dr. Hossein a call to see how things are now, 10 months on.
3: Hi, David. How are you, David? I hope you're having a good day.
0: I'm really well, thank you. It's very kind of you to ask. Dr. Hussain, you spoke to us in January this year. How are things different now compared to then?
3: Well, back in January, it was all COVID, COVID. And, you know, really, really upset about people dying and talking to relatives over telephone and FaceTime. You know, having those difficult conversations and those things. So it was really busy. It's still busy now. Everybody else has decided to go back to normal, not wear their mask. And thank God for the vaccines. People are returning to a normal life. My friends who are not doctors, they think, oh, it must be good in the hospitals because you know the COVID number has gone down. And we're like, actually, no, because even though COVID number has gone down, the other patients have become more sick. Now the hospitals are filled with patients that are affected indirectly because of COVID. I say indirectly because these are patients that had pre-existing conditions before COVID. They had heart diseases, liver problems, kidney problems. These diseases have gotten so much worse that they've all come back all at once very, very sick. So we're dealing with a hospital filled with very, very ill patients. After 18, 19 months of working non-stop we are so tired ourselves i've worked relentlessly and i've I've really cared for patients as if they were my own family we're just empty at the moment
0: when you are that tired and you are feeling that burned out what suffers
3: first of all my my conscience suffers a lot because i wake up in the morning and i'm like oh god i don't want to go to work but i have to go to work and so you go into work and you're not able to give your 100% so the service that you're providing definitely suffers
0: some people call that feeling that you're describing moral injury have you heard that phrase
3: i have i have and i, I would say that i i i i have suffered through that yes
0: Back in the beginning of the pandemic, there was the clapping for carers, there were the NHS heroes and so on. Is it the feeling in the NHS that actually people are no longer grateful, they're no longer looking, they're not no longer quite so bothered, except for those who find themselves in difficulty and they're complaining about the NHS?
3: Well, definitely there is a change of tone when it comes to patients. Earlier, we were, we, yeah, as, as as you correctly pointed out, that we were being applauded for being NHS heroes. But now we're often blamed for spreading the COVID hoax. Sometimes, if we encourage people to get their vaccines, we're accused of trying to inject them with some poisonous material, and they don't want to do it. I think people no longer regard NHS physicians or healthcare workers as their heroes anymore they they just you know if we ask them to wear a mask and they get really they really get disappointed if we ask them to please take their vaccines they you know they tell us off
0: have people actually said those things to you personally
3: about the vaccine yes about the mask yes and about spreading the COVID hoax, well, there was this one patient and we were saying that we'd like to send them to a non-COVID ward. And they're like, there is no such thing as COVID. It's a hoax that you're spreading. And so, yeah, somebody actually said that to me whilst they were in ED.
0: It must be quite frustrating dealing with patients like that.
3: We'll treat everybody regardless of what their beliefs are. But it's it's heartbreaking because it 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 really brings your morale down what
0: would make a difference to you and your colleagues now and in the next few months do you think that what might help
3: we would i think we would really benefit everybody to understand that the nhs is terribly short staffed I joined the NHS in January 2020. I always really wanted to work for the NHS uh, because, you know, everybody knows it's labeled as the best healthcare system in the world. I'm an international medical graduate from Bangladesh. The government needs to take some steps to retain their international staff. We're so far away from home. We've worked relentlessly and yet I don't have a stable immigration status, so I can be deported anytime. And I don't think we deserve that after working so hard for so long.
0: You told us that you had always or had long wanted to work in the NHS. If somebody were to come up with a decent offer from Australia or Saudi Arabia now, might you be tempted?
3: Actually, I was just reading the news. And I think last week, Saudi Arabia actually announced that they were going to reward talented professionals like doctors, scientists with citizenship. I was telling my husband, maybe I should have gone to work in Saudi Arabia. You know, at least I would not have to worry about my immigration status. And, you know, I've heard the pay is great as well. So, yeah, I've actually considered it. And, you know, and I found it ironic that as a woman, I would actually consider it. (laughs)
0: Another doctor we spoke to in January was a consultant in respiratory medicine. He asked us not to use his name so that he could be frank about the difficulties the hospital was facing.
4: We're taking desperate measures to try and get people out of hospital perhaps earlier than we normally would along the lines of the WHO guidelines which were actually designed for resource-poor developing countries. We are stretching the hospital oxygen supply in ways that it was never designed for. It's just unbelievable pressure.
0: That was January, and now in November...
4: Have you just finished a, a
0: shift today? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, just, just, I just came from there. My... You spoke to one of our producers,
4: James. Last time we spoke to you in January, we spoke to you right after a shift, and you were just exhausted, I think quite depressed about the state of things. When you finish a shift now and you come home, how do you feel compared with them? Um, the exhaustion is still there. I, I guess I'm less depressed about things. We have treatments, we have options from a COVID point of view. We've got a much better grip on what we're doing. I guess it's not that we're now dealing with kind of emergency horror show of of you know patients dying left, right, and center. It's just the quantity of the work. And so we're doing remarkably well to keep everything running. But uh, what was it Sajid Javid said that he didn't think the current situation was unsustainable? That's right. Um, I would like to see him try and sustain what we're sustaining at the moment it's a, it's going to be at cost does it feel dangerous do you think there's patient harm that's happening that that wouldn't otherwise have happened you know the old test is you know would you be happy providing this care for your grandmother or your grandfather and where possible we're trying to make that work but there are times when I wouldn't be happy it's it's a time when it would be concerning to have an elderly relative admitted to hospital right now you know this moral injury this idea that you might end up having to accept that you've not been able to deliver the standard of care you wanted and you see the impact of that but you couldn't do anything about it it's a really powerful thing it? and it's certainly affecting colleagues in in my area does the nhs talk about this stuff does it talk to its doctors about it does it offer people counseling has that happened yet well no not really I, we we haven't you know this the steam hasn't gone out of the sitter long enough to actually think about just cooling down and, and thinking about it and processing it you know th- we get regular emails saying you know we, we know how hard it is we know what you're going through there are psychologists available for a chat and support but the thing that they want me to reflect on and, and move on from is still happening so why would I talk to anyone about it now I'm just getting through it and um, I think working in the NHS has always felt like a kind of for some people it's almost like a sort of pathway to martyrdom you know you you've got you you guaranteed a degree of self sacrifice will lead you to a position where you're on some sort of moral high ground and and you know you, you've done your bit for humanity and and isn't everyone grateful and yes you've got high blood pressure and diabetes and and you know you, you've you know your relationships have all broken down you know all of this narrative that we feed ourselves but there was a payoff and and the payoff was that you had a job where you felt you were contributing to something bigger than yourself and you had a job where you felt that the people you interacted with were benefiting from you and, and, and grateful. If you think about those payoffs, some of those are, are less visible. We're seeing attacks on doctors, attacks on nurses, on on social media and and in real life that suggest that actually some of the public, a vocal minority aren't grateful to us and actually hold us responsible for for all this stuff. What do you think the next few months look like? It's really tricky to to say what would the collapse of the NHS actually look like in real life. It would look like ambulances piling up outside A&E's, no beds, GPs not able to see you, people dying in ambulances, people dying in the community and and if we look at the situation right now that's starting to happen. The NHS is simultaneously collapsing under the weight of all this, but also being held responsible for it. Another thing that you said to us last time was when it comes to sort of the, the burnout and, and stress, you thought we were going to see quite high resignation at some point. Mm. Are you still gonna be doing this in five years? Yeah, I'm useless at anything else. And I and I and I <laughs> and I, I love it to a point that's probably pathological. And despite COVID and the pressures, there there's a job. It, within my week,
0: there is a job that I love. Finally, I know this is really difficult uh, question, but by the time we get to January, February, which is usually the peak of the winter crisis, do we have any idea of what things will be like?
1: It's one of those it depends answers. It all depends on what COVID case numbers do, because... We have coronavirus infection control measures that mean a, a substantial proportion of hospital beds are not available because of the need for, for social distancing. It doesn't take very many more COVID cases to start ramping that pressure up. Likewise, we don't know what's going to happen with flu. It depends on what the public does, whether we go back to levels of pre-COVID mixing all of those little things could add together to to make a fairly big impact and the other thing is kind of is the government going to take any action you know is it going to somehow try to increase bed capacity is it going to ease immigration requirements for care workers which might help boost those staffing levels so there, there are a lot of different factors at play. It's very hard to know.
0: But folks, if there's something wrong with you, still go and see your doctor and still try and get some care, yeah?
1: Yeah, absolutely. They very much want to see people who need their help.
0: In a statement, an NHS spokesperson said, NHS staff have gone above and beyond over the last 18 months treating 500,000 seriously ill COVID inpatients And as most recent data shows, they also contended with the busiest October ever for major A&Es and for life-threatening ambulance call-outs in a single month. The NHS is maximising the availability of urgent care services. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guests, Times Health Editor Kat Lay, Vice President of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine, Dr Adrian Boyle, Junior Dr Pushpo Babel Hossain, and an anonymous respiratory consultant in London. You can keep up with all of Cat Lay's reporting at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer was James Shield, the executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. And if you've got a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, I'm really keen on those, actually, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to thetimes.co.uk. The See you again soon.